The first way we did it was called part by part. This one is called the full sweep. And they both serve a different function. The first one serves the function of gaining insight and becoming aware of one's reactions and all the things I explained about it. This one has a function for calm. Now, it not naturally, it doesn't do that for everybody, but it is designed for that purpose. And if it is done in the, in the way, in this way, it is very often for people an entry that gets them into that house with the eight rooms. There are many other ways of getting in there, but this one is not very, it's not a difficult one. <coughs> I will continue now with the um, uh, transcendental dependent arising where I stopped with the fourth uh, meditative absorption and mentioned to you that the next four are extensions of that one. Now, again, to make it quite clear, maybe I will repeat that these first four that I was talking about, naturally start with the first one. If you get a decidedly pleasant body feeling, that is pity or pretty. And that is the entry into samatha, into calm. That is the entry into the five factors of the first absorption, which I explained uh, yesterday. And they are the initial application, which is what you do when you get at the meditation subject, and the sustained application, which means you can stay on it, the pleasant feeling, which is the pretty or the piti, I'll stay with the Pali because I'm used to Pali, piti, and then a certain happiness arises with it, and one-pointedness. This is why I was stressing one-pointedness this time when we were going through, because also maybe you noticed if you put your attention on both feet and one is over on this on the right and one is over on the left and you feel as if you're going from here to there and here to there, if you put your full attention on the sensation and you're one pointed on the sensation, there is no over here and over there. There's just sensation. And this is the secret of becoming concentrated and absorbed to be one-pointed on whatever this one is using. It doesn't have to be the sensation. But seeing that the first meditative absorption concerns sensation, this is an easy entry because PT is a sensation. The fourth one is a difficult one to get into because it requires 
that even the one who is the observer lets go for that time and becomes the experiencer. Now, we usually have an experience and an observer. And the observer is still part of our ego concept. But to get into a deep concentration, into the uh, meditative absorption, which is absolute peace and absolute equanimity, it is necessary to have only the experiencer. So there is a very um, important and great step necessary to let go. There are extensions to this fourth one. And the first one of those is called the base of infinite space. The word itself brings hardly any meaning to it. But what happens in this particular absorption is that it appears as if the body limits the um, uh, outline of the body is so enlarged that it loses itself into infinity. In other words, there is no personal body to be found. It is very often a gradual process of expansion, but it can also be an immediate process, either way. Here we have a distinctive observer. The next three absorptions are very much for insight. They are the, I should say, the pleasant way to gain insight. The, uh, the gradual expansion or the immediate expansion are both possibilities and make no difference, but the result is that all that is uh, in the awareness, in the consciousness, is infinity of space, and within that infinity of space, no personal body nor other bodies can be found. The uh, correlation between this first one of the arupas, the non-material absorptions, to the rupas, rupa jhanas, the material absorptions, the fine material absorptions, the correlation is that in the very first one it concerns sensations arising from the body. Here it concerns expansion arising from the body. There are only two things in the universe, mind and matter, nama, rupa. That's all there is. Rupa is matter, corporality. Nama. And within those two, it is either the one or the other that we are concerned with. So in the very first instance, in the first uh, jhana, and here in the fifth one, it is concerning the body. But it is concerning this body in a totally different manner than what we're used to. 
We're used to having to look after this body. We're used to having to deal with it, with its many aches and pains, with its desires, which it, with its uh, needs. It does have needs. It also has lots of desires because of the mind being interested in the contact. So we don't deal with that here. What we deal with is, in this case, um, a complete loss of it. And this gives rise to the insight automatically, without even giving any deliberate attention to it, that there is one whole. And it can be likened to something like this, which may arise or not, that within this spaciousness of infinity, as if it were an, an ocean in infinity, and out of that ocean arise little bubbles. And these little bubbles, of course, disappear into the ocean again, but during the time that they have arisen, they get the idea that they are individuals. They forget completely that all that was happening is that, that they arose from this ocean and going to go right back into it. And they think that they are beautiful, clever, stupid, that they're better than somebody else, that uh, they know more, that they know less, all sorts of things. One will say to the other, look at me, I'm so big. The other one will say, but look at me, I'm so pretty. And in, in, in reality, these are bubbles arising out of this immense ocean and, of course, immediately falling back into it, just like bubbles always do. So in this infinity of space, nothing can be found except space. And that realization comes that the idea of a personal body and the idea of all sorts of personal bodies, whether they are human beings or animals, whether they are trees or flowers or rocks or anything at all, is nothing but a mental illusion. It is not an optical illusion. With our physical eye, we see all these separate bubbles. But mentally, we completely uh, deluded, thinking that these are actualities, realities. They are nothing but having arisen from craving, craving to be. Having experienced a space in which there is nothing, especially not me, because the whole thing revolves around me, that realization arises automatically. That there is a whole, but there aren't actually any separations. Out of that whole, some things arise and disappear again into that whole. Whole with a W in front. <laughs> Difficult to pronounce. <laughs> This uh, infinity of space is not described by the Buddha other than calling it the infinity of space, which again gives rise to the thought that either everybody could do it in those days in India that was interested in meditation or that the instructions were lost. It is a constant refrain 
he mentions all eight of the absorptions in all uh, discourses concerned with uh, either meditative procedure or particularly with the procedure to get to liberation. The next step, the next absorption is called the infinity of consciousness. And again, there's a correlation to the second jhana in the uh, fine material sphere. The second jhana in the fine material sphere changed from the physical aspect of the sensation to the emotional aspect of joy, happiness. Whereas here, we're changing from the physical aspect of complete expansion to the mental aspect of an infinity of consciousness in which there is no personal consciousness to be found. Both arise simultaneously, just as they do in the first and second jhana. In the first and second jhana, the joy arises simultaneously with the pleasant feeling. It is impossible not to have happiness when you feel very well and very pleasant. The same, it is impossible to be aware of infinity of space if there is no infinity of consciousness. So both arise together, and in order to get from one to the other, it is just a matter of turning one's attention away from one and turning it to the other. And this is a very important aspect of the practice that leads to liberation. It is turning one's attention away from worldly matters and turning it towards that which is the unconditioned, the liberating freedom. Both are available to us in our consciousness and as we learn to do it in the meditation, to turn ourselves away from that which is definitely impeding and destroying and disturbing and turn it towards that which is peaceful and wholesome, we learn to change our attention from one to the other. We need not continue to be attentive to that which brings no results to us other than worldly results. When we have an, an, the experience of an infinity of space, we naturally must have the infinity of consciousness in order to know it. So turning to that infinity of consciousness, we realize after having done it that there is no personal consciousness. There is no such thing as me. There is nobody there that has a separate mind and body. These are all the bubbles arising out of craving that they want to be and disappearing again. And while they have arisen, they think that they are me. When there is that consciousness expansion, it also sometimes appears as if it starts from one's own mind and goes outward. These are just appearances, of course. It may be also uh, immediate. There may be an immediate expansion. This immediate expansion is more likely because the infinity of spaces has already happened. When we are aware of this infinity of consciousness, it is um, an experience which not only brings this result, which is afterwards, but it is an experience of 
not being burdened with personality, not being burdened with the ego concept, not having to be, having to achieve, having to do, having to know, having to become all the things that we think we have to do. That all disappears at that time completely because the expansion of the consciousness leaves no room for any personal um, uh, concept, idea, desire. In other words, all there is is awareness, but it isn't mine. In some cases, people do get to the Arupa Jhanas without having traversed the Rupa Jhanas. They get to the non-material absorptions without having gone through the fine material absorptions. This does happen. It's rare, and um, those people usually can go back then and do the others. So there are people who do experience this expansion without having experienced the other steps which I outlined earlier. The next step on, in this uh, progression is that it's also a very um, natural one, just like the correlation again in the um, fine material absorptions where when one has had pleasant feelings, has been very happy, one is naturally then contented. It's a natural progression. Here we have a natural progression to the base of nothingness. It's a description that says nothing. <laughs> but it does mean something. And nothingness is often totally misunderstood. And in this particular instance, we can have a simile like this. When we come into this hall, we see a lot of pillows, we see a lot of people, we see a lot of uh, things on the shrine, and uh, a lot of uh, uh, material aspects are here. Then somebody comes along and cleans the whole place out. And we come in. There's nothing in here. There's nothing in here, but there is space. And in that space, there's nothing. But that doesn't mean that we see nothing. We know that there's nothing here. It's not that we've stopped knowing. So here, when we get to the base of nothingness, it's a natural progression from having experienced infinite space, infinite consciousness, we realize that within this spaciousness that we're experiencing, within this um, ultimate consciousness that we're experiencing here, that there is absolutely nothing to hang on to. It is empty of any phenomena. There is nothing there that we can hold on to, that can give us security, 
that we, we can't grab a star and say this one's mine and then rest on it. There is absolutely emptiness. This is in this particular meditation experience. The room has been emptied out. We find a totality of existence in which nothing particular is to be found that we can say, it's me, it's mine, I want it, I'll have it, I'll keep it. None of that. So possibly the simile of the room that has been emptied out gives an idea. Naturally, one has to bite into the mango to know the taste of the mango, but at least it may give an idea. These three are natural progressions, and once the mind has become uh, concentrated enough to go into the absorptions, these are natural follow-ups. The next one, the eighth one, is again difficult like the fourth one and has a great correlation to it. The fourth one is total peacefulness. And the eighth one is neither perception nor non-perception, which also tells nothing. But what it is all about is that the mind stops perceiving even peacefulness but remains awake and remains alert to being peaceful. So it is a state where the peacefulness of the fourth absorption is still surpassed because in the fourth absorption there is the perception of peace, whereas in the eighth one there isn't even the perception of peace, but there is peace. That's about twice as much as what the Buddha said about it. <laughs> and about all one can say about it. <laughs> the um, difficulty which lie in both of these, in the fourth and the eighth, is the fact that one really has to give oneself up. And this is the difficulty of reaching liberation. So these are excellent uh, preconditions for liberation. They are by no means liberation. The ego re-arises re after one comes out of this meditation. But they are excellent preconditions because in, in order to get into the fourth jhana, it is necessary in order to use a simile to be willing to drown, to drown in, in that peace which is possible to attain, but only possible to attain if there is nobody that wants to be that peace. One has to give oneself completely up, one has to give oneself completely away, one has to let go of all preconceived notions, what there I am, what I will be, what I could be, what I'm going to be, and what I'm going to have, and so forth. This total giving up, being able to let go of this hanging on to body and mind, is a necessary condition to go into fourth and also eighth 
uh, absorption. There are also necessary preconditions for even getting an inkling of what it's all about when we talk about Nibbana. To get, uh, to go this pathway along the eight absorptions is an excellent training for the mind to have the capacity for one-pointedness, which is essential in order to reach any kind of past moment, and the training for the um, ability to let go of the I, the me consciousness. Although in all these absorptions, even in the AIDS, there is someone who is experiencing this. It has to be so minute, it has to be given up to such an extent that it already gives one a glimpse what it means to let go completely. Letting go completely is, of course, another step. When the Buddha did these absorptions and when he learned them from his two teachers, he realized that when he came out of them that Dukkha was again there, that the ego returned. So he realized that there was something more to be done. And that was his contribution to and the, the uh, innovation that he brought to the whole of this spiritual path which meditatively already existed in India and had been existing for quite uh, about two and a half thousand years before the Buddha. There are records of it. So the innovation and the uniqueness of his teaching lies in the fact that the eight absorptions are the path but not the end. Because in those days and still today, having come to an experience of neither perception nor non-perception brings the afterwards brings the idea of having reached a, such a high state of um, of purification and realization that nothing else needs to be done. But that is a total misconception. And in the teaching that we have in all schools, this is uh, never, that error is never perpetrated, that this is all that needs to be done. Having come to the end, to the AIDS, our concern lies with getting into the first. And uh, that is something that most people would want to do, but in order to do it, the wanting has to stop. What we can do to make the meditation successful is to make a determination. When one first sits down, to make a determination 
I will not be deterred from my meditation subject. I'll stay on it. And every time I wander off, I'll be back. In other words, to make a determination not to be dreamy or um, uh, get into any kind of uh, hopes and prayers and uh, future happenings or past remembrances, but have a real determination. I'll really do it this time. Then drop that too. And having aroused a feeling of contentment in oneself, happiness about the state of affairs as it is, keeping the mind tethered, so to say, not allowing it to play its usual games. Once it has learned to be tethered like this, it will stay naturally so. It doesn't actually enjoy those thinking games. It is quite um, bothered by them. It has, um, it has a feeling of dukkha about it, all those thinking games that are going on. It doesn't have no enjoyment in them. So the mind is far happier if it can actually stay with the subject. Because even staying with the subject for a short while brings some peacefulness. If a little peacefulness is experienced, that feeling can be also an, an entry. The feeling of peacefulness which arises may be uh, cultivated by keeping one's attention on it as long as possible. The easiest entry is what we have just done, getting the pleasant sensation and using that as one's focus. If we keep, if we use the breath, there's nothing else to be done except staying on it. One of the helps we can have is to fill the body with breath, to fill it completely and be aware of the sensation that arises when the body is full of breath and then letting it come out again, realizing the sensation. There is a very pleasant sensation when the body is full of breath. So we can use that too. That's also a help. in order to get into these states of absorption. Loving-kindness meditation is also another possibility, namely, by using the spiritual heart center, which we usually consider to be in the middle, and trying to feel the warmth that is in there and opening it up. Opening it in other words, expanding it, making it far more open, getting a feeling of the warmth in there. That too is a sensation which can be used for the entry into the absorptions. The absorptions are the sukha way of practice, the pleasure way of practice. 
And the Buddha said, this is a pleasure I allow myself. They are the way of practice which makes it really almost impossible to fall off the practice. I say decidedly almost because anything is possible. But it is extremely helpful. There are possibilities of gaining insight without going through the absorptions. It's um, more difficult, less pleasurable, easier to fall off the practice, and usually one should not be without a teacher because there are too many pitfalls when it's done without the absorptions. The absorptions do keep one in a, in a balanced state. So, loving-kindness, opening up the heart, feeling the warmth, the uh, fan-type um, sweeping, which we've just done, coming to the sensations, feeling the body with breath, becoming aware of the sensation when the body is full of breath, making a determination, but not hoping for anything, not looking for anything, not expecting anything. Hoping, looking, expecting are all detrimental to concentration. We can only do one thing at a time. We can either hope and expect, or we can concentrate. So we must do the one which is necessary, that's the concentration. There is actually nothing to hope for anyway, there's nothing to expect. If we leave the mind alone and actually allow it to settle into and become one with the meditation subject, it will do what we are hoping it will do. The mind has that capacity, the mind has that ability, the mind has that as a natural um, progression once it is uh, made to to concentrate at least a little and all the questions all that which we are hoping to gain we already carry within so the whole of the path is a constant letting go it's a letting go of all our preconceived notions of our preconceived ideas, of our beliefs, viewpoints, standpoints, the more we can let go, the easier the whole thing is. And the same applies to the absorptions. The more we can let go of what we have heard, believed and hoped for, of what we would like to get, of what, where we would like to go, how we would like to do it, and just sit down and do it, the easier it is. And all the views we have, all the ideas, all detrimental to the actual practice. We can pick all those views and ideas up again when we leave the hall and carry them around with us if we want. They are nothing but a burden. They make life difficult. Because of all our viewpoints, we're very burdened 
and because of all these ideas that we have we have to take a stand if we were to let go of all of that we would find the truth within it is one of the aspects one of the qualities of an arahant that he has no views having had, having experienced the truth there is no view and another quality of an arahant is although touched by worldly circumstance never his mind is wavering stainless soulless and secure his is the highest blessing this is the mangala sutta and blessing sutta soulless is no dukkha secure is no ego and stainless is no defilements so stainless soulless and soulless and secure he of course has the highest blessing and having no viewpoints is one of the last lines of the karaniya metta sutta the loving kindness sutta where it says that if there is complete purification then there are also no viewpoints so if we detect viewpoints within and we should be able to detect hundreds of them but let's just detect a few it is very helpful to drop them at least for the time of meditation because only then will the meditation flourish as i said you don't have to throw them away if you're attached to them everybody's attached to their viewpoints you can just keep them on the pillow beside you and pick them up again as you go out but during meditation and specifically at the beginning of meditation no views how it should be done no views how other people are doing it no views what you want to attain with it nothing just being there and i think that was probably the reason and the cause why this girl i told you about would never done anything it never heard anything was able to do it she had absolutely not a single view about the whole thing she'd never heard anything before and she had never even tried anything before it is still of course uh, quite an exception but it is one of the factors which are very helpful to drop as much as we can to get into the absorptions we have to let go we have to let go and the thinking stops when we let go when we let go of all the things that are important to us then it stops and maybe if we take a little time out to contemplate whether these things that are so important to us are in an absolute sense really important maybe we will find that we can just as easily drop them because anything that is important to us and others will gain and be enhanced immeasurably if we ourselves who are part of this important thing are culti- cultivate our own liberation or at least as much of it as possible whatever it is we're trying to do it can only 
suffer if we keep on thinking and doing it in our mind. And it can only gain tremendously if we drop the whole thing and look after our own, uh, like our own growth, spiritual and emotional growth. So the more we can drop all these ideas that come to the mind, the easier it will be to eventually pick them up again and fulfill them in an entirely different manner. The absorptions are part of the transcendental dependent arising and from now on the next steps are the insight steps where and how the insight can be aroused and naturally the whole thing ends with liberation. So I will talk about these next steps at another time. And now you have some time to ask some questions if you like. Many, many, many months of hard work to transcribe and eventually proofread, edit, and then get them published. <laughs> yes. Some of us still have are used to uh, transcribing. Would it be possible to do rough, just rough copy, not publication? Yes, you have the tape. Sure, and send me a copy. <laughs> Yes. Particularly, I think, on the Janana teachings. Hmm. Send, send me a copy, huh? <laughs> because then it's half the work done. I edit them. You see, when I speak, I say things twice and even three times. <laughs> but when it's written, it has to be taken out. And uh, although it sounds as if it's just good grammar, it's amazingly bad grammar when you see it written. There are sentences which don't fit together that it has to be edited out. Those two books that you're talking about, the uh, talks were given in Sri Lanka. Yes. Mm. Both, both of those two books are, uh, each have 12 Dhamma talks, which I gave on my Nan's Island in Sri Lanka. Mm. And I don't know, maybe my syntax well, changes well, in the well, East. Most people who read it, they thought, uh, I didn't say it was a Sri Lanka. 
Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The English are such. Yes. Come. <laughs> um, because of my own experience, what happened afterwards is I just had a teacher and I lost what I gained. The girl in Germany that you're speaking of, what did she do with it? Well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> After the 10 day course, she left. <laughs> Well, I hope so. I think she is, yes, but I can't tell you. I've only just left Germany and just arrived here. So you don't know if it changed the direction of her life or it, I, that is true. That it has changed the direction of her life is that is a, a foregone conclusion, yes. Yeah. yes. But how it has, I will only find out when I get her first letter. <laughs> But it has changed, that's for sure. Yeah, it really changed the direction of mind. I mean, uh, I, I uh, contemplated suicide every day for 10 years, and the only reason I didn't do it is I couldn't think of any unique way, and I wasn't going to just die like anybody else. <laughs> completely, you know, I wouldn't even consider that now, no matter how depressed mm -hmm. I am. It just isn't, you know, an aspect of my, of my thinking. The whole, everything that I did for all those 25 years before was just didn't... Um, Mm. Yes. But you see, every person's uh, uh, experience is unique in a way. So uh, I only, I think I was asked by someone, how long does it take to get there? And that's why I used her as an example. Uh, but she's, of course, only one amongst thousands of students that, I mean, she's a minority, obviously, and uh, a minority of one, I should think. <laughs> But uh, so your experience is unique to you and uh, having lost it is no reason why you can't gain it again. Are you making any progress? <laughs> well, obviously the weeds have grown very high in 19 years. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 yeah, but they are temporarily uh, abated when the concentration is there. Uh, that is not, uh, I mean... We No. No, I stayed there for three months, and uh, I was what they call a student visitor. No, is that what they called it? Yes. Something like that. Yes. And you, you give a sort of half a day of work, and you did all their, uh, I mean, all their sittings. I did all that, but they didn't have a session at that time. Mm. Well, um, my understanding of This kind of realization that you talk of, which is immediate absorption, then we can't say, you know, exactly how things compare in terms of realization, but let's just say this kind of realization. My understanding is in Zen that they practice to attain this, and it's called Satori. And the notion there is that in the beginning is not necessarily stabilized. However, having experienced this, then you have the proper motivation to practice. And before having realized this, you don't really know why you're hmm. practicing. So just putting that out, I'm curious to you know how hmm. uh, Theravada path would respond to that kind of thing. Yes. Well, for years on end, 
I have tried to find out what Satori means and I have yet not found out. I have asked all the Zen practitioners that I've come across, most of them haven't had it, so they didn't know what to say, and uh, I've looked in all the Zen books that were available to me, and I have quite a few, and yet it, I still don't know whether they mean the absorptions, whether they mean actually going, getting the first absorption and then going on with the others, or whether they mean what we call the stream entry. The stream entry is the first aspect, first time of realizing Nibbana for oneself. And I will talk about that in my progression of dependent arising. Um, I don't know whether they call the Tori this or that. I mean, both will give you the motivation to practice naturally, but one is far superior to the other. Right. Stream entry is far superior to uh, the, the jhanas. I think it, it's, you know, from what I know, I would say it's more stream entry. Stream entry. But not stabilizing. Right. Well, stream entry is not However, stabilized. However, I think Janana state, although they might not call Satori, the student would be quite delighted to have had mm. that much, uh, uh, something that revolutionizes your, yes. your perception yes. of reality. Well, they have another word, which is Kensho. And I don't know whether Kensho and Satori are synonymous. I, I really don't know. Maybe the one is the jhanas and the other one is the stream entry. I, I really, I am very limited. I'm very sorry. I really don't know what their words mean. So my question really is not so much like which is which, but mm. is there the notion of having had this experience, the, the, that the really main value of the, of the realization or the experience is then that you perceive, you have then perceived reality in a different way, therefore you practice with that as motivation? Uh, that, that's really my question. Referring to the jhanas, referring yes, to the absorptions, yes. yes. Uh, certainly uh, the motivation uh, becomes, well, it becomes automatic. I mean, having experienced something which uh, gives you a far greater a happiness than anything else that you can ever experience anywhere. The, the motivation to practice is uh, so automatic that nobody needs to urge you to sit down and meditate. In fact, in some cases, uh, uh, people um, forget that they have to do their, their daily living also, and uh, you have to remind them that, you know, it isn't only one-sided, it is both ways you have to work. So the motivation is, is enormous. Uh, you perceive reality differently which gives you the in to the uh, liberating path. Right. It gives you an in. You, you've got something there where you say, aha. You know, it is a real, it's a, even the first thing that happens is an aha experience. So uh, it has both aspects. It has the motivation and it also has the in to the inside. Now the other question is, uh, in both the Zen, as I understand it, and in the Vajrayana, um, the training is um, a tremendous emphasis in the training on not clinging. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of Landry's experience and how she was then left with the 
uh, wanting to get back. Mm-hmm. So in the Zen and also in the Mahayana, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, not clinging to whatever may arise. For instance, in Vajrayana, there's a phrase, even the best experiences of bliss, luminosity, and non-abiding are obstacles if you cling to them. True. And mm-hmm. therefore, as students, uh, it's trying continually from day one to undercut this tendency of wanting to get back to something. And the emphasis being on uh, what is ordinary to be the most valued. Nevertheless, in the process, one has, has all these, uh, or necessarily has these, one's perspective mm-hmm. of reality changes. And that's quite uh, you said, necessary. So I'm curious in Theravada, since it's the mm-hmm. same question, how much emphasis is placed in the teachings on this non-clinging to mm-hmm. even the best experiences? Well, what you said, sentence you quoted is absolutely right. Uh, if you're clinging to it, then it has no value. Uh, these are called the imperfections of insight. There are ten imperfections of insight, and uh, these things that I'm quoting are not actually out of the Pali Canon, but they're out of the Visuddhimagga. Is the Visuddhimagga known to you? <coughs> it's, uh, yeah. it's called the path of yeah. purification. And uh, it is uh, sort of a Bible for Theravadans. Um, <laughs> I prefer to use the Pali Canon. But anyway, in it are ten imperfections listed, and one of them, and, and they are all, all of them are, thinking that any of these states are uh, realization states, uh, which I mentioned. And the other thing is that clinging to them is counteracted by what I uh, mentioned, I think, yesterday, was that the first thing to do before you open your eyes is to re- uh, experience the impermanence of this pleasant uh, uh, happening. Because, as I said, we are always willing to experience the impermanence of our dukkha. But uh, here we must experience the impermanence of our sukha. And uh, so that's the very first thing to do. To realize that, and any yeah, the clinging that happens and uh, which I, uh, Landley is suffering from also because she didn't get it back uh, was also due to the fact that there was nobody she could ask about it. I mean, I would dare say you didn't even know what was happening. Yes, well, you see, and I've had several students like that, and one came to me after 25 years and she's now 68 and uh, when she came and I explained the whole thing it was such a burden off her shoulders and uh, she was able to get back into it very easily after 25 years and before that she had had no idea what happened and of course she constantly remembered it so uh, if you have any kind of uh, teaching, whether it be verbal or even the book teaching, you will find that these are, um, are skillful means, and that's all. They are nothing that you uh, must hang on to. And the very first thought that when it happens, that is very common, oh, now it's gone. I wonder whether I can get it back. That's exactly what's going to hurt one, because that's the clinging that we have. So therefore we have to look at the impermanence. And this is of course 
an impermanence experience which is um, uh, quite uh, penetrating. It's a penetrating experience of impermanence because you can watch the whole thing happening and going and thinking, oh, that is really something I wanted to keep and it's gone. And the, that penetrates that experience. So, uh, yes, the clinging to it is a very... Um, you see, there's a mistake, though. And this mistake is very common. And this mistake happens, uh, I think, in many schools, including Theravada. Because of the fear that one is that the students are going to cling to this, it's not being taught. Because of the fear that there can be an attachment to it, it's downgraded. The Buddha never did that. He, he taught it, he never downgraded it. He obviously, he said not to cling to it, naturally, because non-clinging and non-craving, or rather non-craving actually, is the it's synonymous with Nibbana, non-craving. So that mistake is very, very common, that uh, because of that fear, all oh, the students are going to cling to it, or they, they, um, uh, they're going to like it too much, or they're going to get stuck there. Uh, this is constantly negated, this teaching. And it's very, very seldom that uh, it is being taught. Why is it not being taught? The jhanas, the absorptions. And uh, maybe it is interesting for you to know because, uh, I mean, this is a monastic situation, usually I don't talk about this, but my teacher, who teaches both ways, he teaches through the jhanas and also through the pure insight, which uh, he himself says it's a hard way, <laughs> um, has, uh, well, I would say almost begged me to teach the jhanas because he says it's a dying art. It's, it's being, being lost. And the reason for that is the fear. The fear of it. The fear of this clinging. Exactly that. And you will find, I think, I don't know, the dozens of teachers, I myself have had that experience, when you come with something like this, and you say, well, I've had this experience, and they'll say to you, get back to the breath. No, that state that you're talking about is something else, it's something else entirely. It's the ninth jhana, which is not really a jhana, and which I haven't even talked about, it's called Niroda. And it's only available to the non-returner and the arahant. And um, uh, do you have that gradation of four stages of enlightenment? Stream entry, once returner, non-returner, arahant? Yes. You have that? Okay. So, um, um, 
it's only available to those two, to the non-returning arahants, called Niroda, and it can be held up to seven days. And the person appears to be dead, but uh, there, is, uh, there is heartbeat and there is breath, but there's, uh, it's like a, a stiff like a stone. And uh, you don't have to do this sort of thing, but uh, it can be done, but only for non-returning arahants. So that's an entirely different matter. I think another reason that teachers are wary of teaching Lots of preparation is uh, uh, because it can produce, um, what could you say, sort of the student keeps wanting to have something mm -hmm. that they haven't had. It's like, the, uh, and then they don't have it, so then they feel badly, and so it produces this. Uh, um, Disappointment because mm -hmm. you can't have this wonderful thing you think you're mm -hmm. supposed to have, and then you feel even worse about yes. it. So, so that's that's the other side of it. One side mm -hmm. getting caught in, in it, the other side getting caught in feeling denigrating yourself because you don't have something. Yes. Well, the opposite uh, of that is, and this is what my teacher uh, said, that if it is taught, it is so much easier for people to get to it because you can turn your your sights deliberately from that to that. It's so much easier. And the uh, uh, disappointments uh, of those who haven't got it, that you have to counteract by uh, also being able to gain insight on the way, you see. There are always the two ways. There's always the insight way and the calm way. So the, uh, the teaching is so much easier it's so much easier for them to be able to do it then because they, they know what to do. And dozens and dozens of people have found that they have done it without knowing it and not knowing what they were doing. So the, uh, uh, I, it, it overshadows uh, the uh, wanting and not getting because that too is a lesson in itself. I want something, I'm not getting it, and it's very useless to want something. And to concentrate, not want something. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say one more thing to this. Um, because of all those fears, it has become a lost art. And this is a great a pity. It's a great pity. Because if these fears had been counteracted with some common sense, and uh, I think in the West we, we can use common sense quite well, uh, then it wouldn't have become such a lost art. Yes, well, uh, in their school, of course, they are dead set against all that stuff. The, the Burmese are dead set against uh, uh, med med uh, meditative absorption. Why? I don't, well, those reasons. You think they're going to get attached to them. And you see the statement that he's making is a, is a, a statement which, from, you know, from where he sits. <laughs> but, I mean, there's many forest monks practice that way. I thought that um, 
Disadvantage lies in what? Well, the disadvantage lies in is that we're always undercutting ourselves yeah. so that so that although we can gain insight further through the insight path, which I am just trying to understand, um, it's risky because a lot of people leave because they just like it gets to the point where um, I've noticed that some people have a hard time just getting into the shrine of their practice and. Um, Yes. Well, if they know the jhanas, they won't leave. <laughs> I have, uh, I mean, I've had people leave, obviously, from my nunnery, terribly discontented. So, I mean, I don't want you to uh, think that uh, that doesn't happen. But those people were, of course, um, first of all, their practice was not, you know, coming together. Uh, they weren't... Uh, Gaining this peacefulness, uh, but most of the people who were there, even for just for three months, were able to touch upon at least several, you know, maybe first or second. I don't remember exactly now, and have. Um, I mean, they are so immensely grateful for that experience; it will never leave them. And all those people are still practicing. All those that were at my nunnery, there's no exception. Um, every single one of them. Uh, they're distributed over the whole world. I don't even know exactly <laughs> where they are, but I do hear from them from time to time. And those that I meet, they're all practicing, um, especially, of course, the ones that have gained the jhanas. And there are a few, of course, that never got anywhere near it, and with them the practice is very sporadic. It's very wobbly. But the ones that gain the jhanas are all practice. They won't stop. And their life got changed. Their life got changed through that. Their inner life, not their outer life, their inner life. They went back to the same thing they did before. Householders? Yes, many of them. Yes. That's where I was going to ask. What, is, what about the householders? All this teaching looks very good if you are sitting here, but if you are dealing with three days, 
Well, they stayed for three months. Yes, they're all, they're all, most of them are householders. And you have to be able to if someone wants to come to your memory for a... It would help. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you said your friends are householders, but if you are not a Buddhist even, and you are a householder... No, no, these, these are, these are students who are Buddhist. Right. Yes. Non-Buddhist are not Oh, I wouldn't say that. It helps to be a Buddhist. To live in a Buddhist country, in a Buddhist nunnery, it helps to be a Buddhist. <laughs> it's easier. Come. Were you finished? Yeah. Most of them don't get completely stuck. It's difficult, but most of them do manage uh, to carry on. I have, I have no recollection of anyone who's completely stuck. <laughs> but it's better than have, having the three, it's better than having nothing, well, you know. What does it mean to carry on? Uh, that they are able to go further, to go into the fourth. I mean, it takes time. It takes determination. It takes letting go. It takes uh, encouragement. It takes all sorts of things. But even if you only are able to go to the to first, second, third, you have a jewel beyond price, and you have an ability in the mind which is far different from any ability ever had before. And it makes the attainment of insight um, so much easier. Never mind if you can't even get into fourth, although I, I can't recollect anyone who's totally stuck. But even that, it doesn't matter. Even just having the first makes a lot of difference. Just getting to the first, that makes a lot of difference. And it is the the whole, how shall I say, um, it's a the compensation for having sat with aching knees and aching back and, and, and a silent mouth for maybe for years on end. I mean, there must be something that is valuable, that is worthwhile, that is beautiful. And uh, that beauty, if it always comes from the outside, it's so unreliable. This is the beauty that comes from the inside. So even the first makes a lot of difference. It doesn't have to be the fourth. And even the first is in a great aid to insight. Even just the first. Because in the first, after coming out of the first, the mind's very clear. So it doesn't matter if you can get to the fourth or not. First will do. Now, if a person then uh, works towards the 
I came up at the expense of a Jana. Mm-hmm. And had the habit of sitting one, two, three hours a day. Um, and had accomplished, say, maybe the first two jhanas. Would the, each time, each time the sit go through the first, second, and then see what happens? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, or would they go directly in, into the experience of the third? No. I it's a more or less theoretical question, isn't it? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, to become a master of the jhanas, you learn to go from any one of them to any other. In other words, you jump from one to eight, from eight to three, from three to seven, and and any number. Uh, you that means master of the jhanas. Uh, you learn to enter at will to stay as long as you like, as you make up your mind, to stay as long as you make up your mind to stay, and to emerge at will. These are the signs of master of the jhanas. But for a uh, student of the jhanas, you go through uh, each one in succession. And you have to know each one in succession separately so that you know exactly where you are. I very often get students who will come and say, oh, I've had such a wonderful experience, but I can't tell you. Well, if you can't tell me, there's nothing we can do about it. The experience has to be so understood that it is possible to verbalize it. So we go through each one of them so that it becomes an understood experience. The more often one does it, the easier it's to understand it. And uh, as it becomes an understood experience, it becomes a natural home for the mind. It's its natural abode. It's where the mind wants to be. I have uh, one more question, if I may. Yes, certainly. From the discussion that we had uh, this morning, it appears that the Theravada tradition is taught at least two different ways. One with the jhanas and one without. Can you talk a little bit more about the, uh, the way it is taught without the practice of the jhanas? Yes, and that I will start uh, explaining that in the next talk because that goes to the inside. So that starts with the inside and I will talk about that in detail. Okay? Hmm? Right. Yeah, all right. Yes. Uh, when, when this said, yes, not the girl who had an experience but when I asked her, she wasn't able to verbalize it. Uh, coming from my background, whatever it is, I'm saying that these, the, the ultimate state is when you ask somebody, when really somebody has experienced beyond samadhi, what is it? And it's like giving a sweet to a, duff, a, a dumb person, and he has tasted the sweet, he knows what the sweetness what you ask him, and he just smiles because he can't talk what he says. 
So that simile is usually given that it's that kind of a joy, bliss, which one enjoys, but one can't see. And that concerns an ultimate state. These are not ultimate states. Yeah, that is the ultimate. And even the ultimate state, uh, the Buddha verbalized it uh, in some manner, and uh, it is possible, even that. No? <laughs> Anything else? 